Hello, I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. You're listening to episode 84 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. We're a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. We're recording this on 20th of March 2020, and neither of us are in Dragon Hall. I know, for the first time ever recording this episode. We're doing it remotely. Yes, so like basically everybody else in the entire world, uh, we are now working from home and adapting as fast as we possibly can to the the new reality that we've all been kind of saddled with for X amount of time into the future. Yes, but we won't let that stop us. No, quite. And uh, this, this particular episode of the podcast is a really good example of that because we have an amazing interview with Jenny Othell coming up. Uh, she is talking to Joe Dunthorne and anybody who had booked a ticket to come and see the event with those two, which was supposed to take place last night, uh, will we'll recognise that this is in fact a kind of a podcast alternative. So Jenny actually had to cancel her whole UK tour for the book launch of Weather uh, due to the coronavirus, but there was no reason to, to not have something still happen. So we got Joe and Jenny, not in a room, but in two rooms with a connection <laughs> over the internet to talk about what they would have talked about if they'd been able to actually both be in Norwich. Uh, inevitably, the discussion brings in coronavirus and its impact and how it's forced everyone to change, which I think is... It's very timely with the book as yes, well, exactly. in and of itself. It's a really, I mean, the, the book was passed around the office at lightning speed when we had this event booked. We were all sort of clambering to read it. Um, and it is a fantastic little book, but it is so timely. It really speaks to our times. Um, and yeah, even more so with this having happened. Um, it's not a depressing read in any way. Um, it's just a real sort of think piece. I think. And um, yeah, I'm really, really interested to see what they've both got to say. Yeah, they talk a lot about the the concept of catastrophizing and mm. kind of having a, a slightly doom laden view of the world, but then how you cope with that and still find purpose and reasons to go on, which, yeah, I mean, the book has been so well received. And that was mm. before it suddenly, accidentally became <laughs> extremely more relevant. Literally came out about a month before this all kicked off for the rest of the world, really. Yeah, hopefully some very timely advice and some nice kind of creative motivational stuff in there. Exactly. On the notion of uh, carrying on, which we're all having to figure out in our own individual ways, and, uh, we also found out this week that the Norfolk and Norwich Festival has had to be cancelled, which I think as soon as this stuff started happening was was unfortunately going to have to happen. Yeah, that was a real heartbreak for all of us, actually. I think we've um, the teams here and at Norfolk and Norwich Festival have been working so hard on such a brilliant programme. We personally had about 30 events lined up with some really fantastic artists who were really looking forward to welcoming here. Um, so that's been quite a lot for us all to come to terms with. But we're, we're not letting it all be doom and gloom. We're putting lots of plans in place. We're in conversation with those artists and many others. We're just going to come up with more creative, inspirational ways to keep these conversations with writers going. Yeah, and this is obviously something that festivals in particular are having to figure out for the first time everywhere in the entire world simultaneously. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure we're going to see lots of really fascinating and creative ways for this kind of stuff to carry on because with us all stuck at home, we, 
need things to do. Yeah. And a lot of, funnily enough, again, a lot of the events um, that we'd programmed for this year's City of Literature program were uh, focusing on how art and culture are a force of resistance and repair and how we can use, you know, books and writing and any kind of art really to help us weather these really tough times. So yeah, we've, it's something we've all been thinking about anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and on that note, just to mention that uh, we do have a whole bunch of other digital resources. Uh, we have free courses available now, which you can find on our courses portal at courses.nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Uh, some great productivity tips from Ben Johncock and a course kind of outlining how to get published and also how to not get published, kind of warning people of some of the pitfalls that you can bump into as a new writer. Uh, and we also have Ian Netherton uh, has a free course on world building in science fiction, which is probably a particularly interesting topic to do right now, actually. Um, seeing as we're kind <laughs> yeah, of living absolutely. in what would otherwise be a science fiction setting. And our learning and participation team are hard at work pulling together lots of resources that we hope will be useful for parents uh, and for teachers or anyone um, with young people in their lives who they're looking to, you know, stay, keep motivated, stay connected, stay creative and entertained. Um, so make sure you're signed up to our newsletter, which you can find a link for on the National Centre for Writing website uh, and stay tuned on our social media channels as well, because that's where we'll be putting out all of our resources. So here is Jenny Offill talking with Joe Dunthorne. This was recorded yesterday, so it's very up to the minute. Uh, this is the, the quickest turnaround we've had on the podcast interview in the history of the podcast. So uh, enjoy. Hi, Jenny. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Greetings from Hi. my living room couch. Oh, greetings from my bedroom. <laughs> um, so we were supposed to be speaking today in the rather beautiful Octagon Chapel in Norwich. Um, but due to the coronavirus, we are not on the same continent. Um, but nevertheless, I think it would be nice for us to imagine ourselves in the Octagon Chapel, which is a perfectly octagonal building, Wikipedia tells me, um, and home to the Unitarian Church, who feature a little in your novel. That's um, true. And I'm sure uh, our listeners will know the Unitarians take inspiration from all religious teachings as well as science and the arts. Um, and I, I imagine the curators of that event chose it because it, it not only is it mentioned in your novel, but it feels like a good match for the kind of breadth of interests you have in your novels and the sense of curiosity about all parts of life um, from... I mean, in the in the newest novel, from the minutes of a 17th century town meeting to kind of paranoid apocalyptic websites to scientific research, research to the natural world to strange jokes. And I love that about your books, that you're able to fuse together seemingly disparate parts of life and thinking and make them into something whole. So Weather is narrated by Lizzie Benson, and she works at a library in New York. And I think it's fair to say that the journey for her in the novel is from being a somewhat passive, somewhat cynical observer of the pot potential threats to human existence to becoming a full-blown 
prepper uh, uh, making plans for her building her doomsday high on a hill. Uh, does that sound fair? Well, she at least imagines that she would do such things. I um, I feel like someone asked me when I was in Los Angeles, home of movie land, uh, what was the elevator pitch for the book? And I thought, oh God, I have no idea. Um, but I, I think of it as a librarian becomes a doomer. But as I got farther and farther into the novel, I realized the doomiest parts are in the middle. And so in a way, um, she comes through the darkness of that tunnel uh, towards the end. But we'll get to that later. But I think it's a fair, um, definitely a fair characterization to say that she goes from being an observer to feeling like she's in the middle of the chaos she's been watching. Yeah. And, and in fact, that sense that she becomes more active as the novel progresses is an interesting idea in that connected to your novel is, is, is this idea that action is the antidote to feeling that you're powerless and depressed and th- there's no point doing anything apart from being cynical. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think of it, my shorthand is that action is the antidote to dread. Right. Um, dread being something where you're anticipating uh, terrible things happening um, before they've necessarily come down the pike. And that can take the form of action like we're talking about prepping where you're stocking up with you know, beans and, and rice and various things. But it can also, at least the way I wanted to explore it in this novel, um, I think there's a version that is like emotional prepping or spiritual prepping, which is trying to imagine yourself out into these possible experiences and maybe to prepare for them by trying to prepare for certain, to bring out certain qualities in yourself, which are more resilient or more um, action oriented. Mm. I, I love in the book, this strand of, is it, is, is it uh, disaster behavior research? What's it called? Yeah. Disaster psychology. Disaster psychology, which is amazing about, I guess, our ability or inability to respond to situations like this. Can you tell us a bit about that? I, I, I love those those quotes. There's one, um, there is a period after every disaster in which people wander around trying to figure out if it is truly a disaster. Disaster psychologists use the term milling to describe most people's default actions when they find themselves in a frightening new situation, um, which feels extremely pertinent for where we are right now. Yes, um, I I now notice myself when I'm milling. Um, I I think that I was really taken with that concept because I I remembered that I had read um, when 9-11 happened here that lots and lots of people um, cleaned up their desks or um, did extra sort of things that you might imagine you wouldn't do in that kind of situation. And the explanation for it um, later was that your brain is so accustomed to being a pattern recognition machine that it keeps looking for a a pattern that it's already um, seen. And so the pattern of leaving the building is of taking your stuff. And therefore, as long as you can go through that pattern, as long as you mill, 
You don't have to take in the gravity of the situation. It's the same reason on airplanes. They say over and over not to um, take your purse or your luggage because people will calmly stand up in the midst of a burning plane and try to open their overhead and get all their luggage down the aisle. Over and over and over again, people do this because our brain just cannot as quickly as our body recognize um, the amount of danger. Uh, so one of the things that disaster psychologists talk a lot about is kind of rehearsing disasters in your mind, which is a very strange thing to do. Although uh, I think those of us who are depressives are familiar with <laughs> it as a as a daily uh, a daily activity. But the idea is that if you've rehearsed in your mind, if you've rehearsed where the exits are, if you've rehearsed how you and your family will uh, somehow manage to stay all together in the same house for months, then there's a little bit more of a template in your mind and your brain doesn't um, as quickly default to fear. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because it, when you're depressed, you're told that catastrophizing is the, is a pattern of thinking to be avoided. But of course, in, right. a, in a genuine disaster situation, that's actually been a rational form of preparation for, for something you might want to. I know it's very about. strange, isn't it? I have a friend that I, th I share a shrink with and I asked her what it was like when she went in the other day and she said, Oh, she's being aggressively calm. <laughs> I thought that was, that was such a take on the way therapists, even in the middle of a disaster will sort of make you feel like, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's not an overreaction. You're like, um, yes, our yes, whole exactly. city's going to be shut down. My kids are going to be in my house and I have to go on the subway every day. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because I remember after, as you know, there's parts of weather, one section of it that takes place after the election of Trump um, in 2016. And I remember very distinctly having this feeling a few days later of anger. And I was angry that I'd ever gone to therapy and been told to stop imagining terrible things because I felt like whenever I thought before the election, I bet he's going to get elected. There's so many secret racists. I bet he's going to get elected. I'd be like, don't catastrophize. Remember the math. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and I was sort of like, there's a way in which it, it feels protective to be imagining. And so disaster psychology was the first time that I'd come across, uh, something that said, yes, uh, go ahead and do that. But what you're not supposed to do, and this, I guess, is follows with this, you're not actually supposed to think very far ahead. You know, you're not supposed to be the part of catastrophizing, which is imagining, oh my God, this will never end. Everything will, you're not supposed to sort of the blanket statement kind of part of it is, uh, is not, not recommended. Right. That that makes total sense because there's that sense of like your escape routes from the house, the practical things and the stuff mm -hmm. in, in in your book about, you know, uh, military survival and these sorts of practical <laughs> things. Whereas mm -hmm. actually the catastrophist just follows the thread until all their family have died and, 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 and you know, that all exactly. e every conceivable sad thing has, has happened to them. I mean, when I was first writing the novel, I... I had this idea that I was going to put an actual survival guide in the book that could be ripped out and taken with you. Uh, I don't know what the situation was where you would take it with you. And as you know, I, I forgot to put uh, pandemics in, so it wouldn't be useful. But but I remember because I was reading all of these different um, 
various kinds of survival uh, manuals from army type survival manuals to hippie survival manuals, basically from back to the land days. And, but the army survival ones were so funny because they were written uh, of course, very earnestly. And I put one of the pieces in the book because it said, plants can be obtained more quietly than meat. This is important when the enemy is near. <laughs> so for a while, every time I would like buy a vegetable, that would go through my head. <laughs> I'm obtaining this plant more quietly, you know? <laughs> so, so there's a way in which um, it's the absurdity of it, I think, it, it was kind of fun writing the writing the book and and I thought a little bit as a novelist uh I have plausible de deniability that I put all these things in just because they're funny and amusing but also if anybody needs to know them I've slipped them in <laughs> well well it, it's worked out surprisingly well for you like re rereading this book it's full of what feels like incredibly um pertinent um thoughts and 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 suggestions and, and it feels like that survival guide is embedded in there i mean i guess you'd have mm -hmm. to take a pair of scissors to the novel and and and, <laughs> and, and snip them all out to, to turn it into a little takeaway booklet that that brings me to a part of your writing and this novel in particular that i find so interesting is how do you fuse together all these disparate sources into What's what's the what, what's the uh, adjective? Ophelian. It's like this, you know. It, it's distinctly you, and no one else has has seems to have done have done it. Although I should say that speaking to a creative writing tutor colleague of mine, she said that all her students are now trying to write Jenny Offal style novels. So you, 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 <laughs> oh, you may my find... apologies, my apologies <laughs> to your friend. Um, um, yeah, so how do you, how, I guess, how did you come to your, your style and, and, and how do you do it when you're actually creating it? Um, well, my first novel is written in a more conventional fashion, uh, Last Things, although it actually, you know, it does deal with um, a mother who's homeschooling her daughter and telling her about the sixth extinction. So there's a crossover in themes and there's nested stories, but it's otherwise, you know, it's written in chapters and it's, it's, uh, blocks of text. But with Department and with this book, I really was interested in getting closer to the way thought moves, at least for me, which is that there's often these moments where you uh, kind of sally forth with an idea and then you double back with a hesitation or a joke or a little bit of a song comes in. And I wanted to sort of figure out how to put all of those in together. One of the ways I do it is with the white spaces so that there's a pause and that things can feel on an equivalent plane. Um, but another way is I just, I think of it almost in terms of like tones and textures. Uh, you know, there's that documentary about the pixies. It's called like quiet, quiet, loud or loud, loud, quiet. And when I'm writing, I often feel like I've gone far enough in one direction and something else needs to come in. Like with the humor, I'm always very afraid of being glib. So I try to make sure that it's surrounded by, uh, it's grounded by things that are um, more, often more domestic or more workaday, where someone, uh, one character is really immersed in their usual world. And then with the very dark uh, sections, of which there are many, I think about uh, how to punctuate them. Uh, 
And often that's humor. Sometimes it's with a text from a different discipline. And then the actual making of it is really just a matter of time. I kind of follow the compass of my own interest. And I'm like, I don't know why I, bu I bought this book about the history of humors. I don't know why I have this book about, you know, polar exploration, but I do like to read it. And so I'm going to pull out little things. I think of it as kind of a magpie where I pull out little things that seem shiny to me and I put them in a, a long, long, uh, that's the long part of the book, the notes. And then when I'm writing the narrative, I sort of see what floats in. Um, and my revision work is at the sentence and paragraph level. Um, and then at the, about the two thirds point where I think that I've made a total uh, hash of it, uh, I start trying to figure out how it all goes together. And that is almost solely a process of time where I just keep going back until I'm sick of almost every fact or whatever and take it out. And then what remains uh, feels like, even if I don't know why it's there yet, it's meant to be there. And that's really interesting. And, and, and when you're constructing it, because because it's in these little segments, can you kind of treat it like um, what's the good metaphor? I don't know, like a Jenga pile. You know, are you, are you kind of mm -hmm. taking taking out your your pieces and, and and thinking actually, you know what, this is in this chapter, but I'll I'll try it for a few weeks here in in chapter one and and, and see how it how it sits. Can you are you kind of swapping things around a lot? Yes, I am. Um, I mean, at a certain point, as you know, when you're writing a novel, it's like you you begin with this long corridor of open doors and endless possibilities and then you close door after door after door until you're just in this t tiny narrow uh narrow hallway because of the choices you've made um and that's when you think i want to write the next book not this book but i um i do feel like uh it's a, it, at a certain point th then it becomes um they stay in place to me, I guess the closest I have to a sort of visual image of it is I hate jigsaw puzzles. So I, I'm I'm speaking without real jigsaw puzzle knowledge, but my daughter and my mother-in-law often do them. And I'm really not even allowed near because I will think pieces fit together that don't. <laughs> but but when I'm uh Are you just kind together, of like forcing it in like I'm sure a little this, bit. This, this looks perfect yeah. I think it's fine what if we just <laughs> put a book on it um and but but in my own experience when I'm writing when things do fit it does feel like when the puzzle pieces go in correctly I don't always understand it but it's very strong intuitive feeling okay yes that goes there um and then there's other pieces I'm moving around but I mean my joke is always that um it's sort of like if you were making a puzzle and you didn't have the cover. And so you were like, hmm, not sure if this is a puzzle of uh, kittens in jelly beans or if it's like a puzzle of a beautiful uh, ocean scene. <laughs> so that part comes later for me. That, that That's really interesting. And, and to come back to the white space, I think that what I really like in reading your books is, is I think my favorite parts of stories and poems and most writing is the beginning and, and the end of it. And so basically mm -hmm. in a, in your book, you get hundreds and hundreds of beginnings and hundreds and hundreds of endings where there's that little break for res for resonance and then it starts again. So I, I think that's, that's, that's really, really cool. I like that idea. Well, you write poetry as well as fiction. So you sort of, you can see the, 
the hybrid type rope I'm trying to walk there. Yeah, yeah, completely. And and I guess in a in a poetry collection, you know, there is a relationship between this novel and and, and a poetry collection in that in that it's about when you're ordering a poetry collection, it's about thinking about how those poems will will speak to each other and 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 what kind of cumulative effect. And, and you talked about how you know you you when you push in one direction, so you push towards doom, then you can uh, rein it in with a joke, or, you, or or the other way. If you're feeling it's going glib, then you can you can take it somewhere darker. And I feel like that's a really that's an instinct when you're ordering a poetry collection as well. But I think I think that's what's so effective about this book is that you you're talking about the climate crisis and you're talking about subjects which have a lot of potential for turning people off if or, or becoming too hopeless or whatever and, and I think what's really what really works is I guess both that you have Lizzie as an every person who isn't perfect is cynical sometimes you know fails if we can if we can call it that in, in lots of ways but it is it, slowly kind of um on a journey to becoming more aware of these things and so she's someone we can really get behind and also you, you the way you 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 mix registers means that we're not we're never in that like true darkness for long or vice versa we're, we're never in kind of we're never let off the hook either mm. well that's what i was you know hoping for so thank you i'm i'm glad that it reads that way to you at least um i feel like one of the things that i i just wanted to bring in because it was from my own experience was um I never thought that I would become someone who was like a climate activist or anything like that um, because I always found all of it um, sort of uh, frighteningly earnest. And um, I, I felt not very much among my my people. I felt like I was always making the wrong joke or not eating enough of my, uh, you know, spooned out mush that you're given at a outing. Um, and so I was too wasteful. I flew too much. I, I just generally all those kind of things. And then as I got farther and farther into this novel, I just started feeling like, I mean, once you go down the rabbit hole to really looking into the, um, the statistics and the numbers uh, about the climate crisis, I mean, it immediately becomes a sort of, uh, oh my God, moment. And I just started thinking, I think this whole idea that we all have to be already perfect to speak about it is it's actually kind of like a right-wing talking point because it, it, every time anyone proposes anything, people say, oh, but don't you wear shoes, you know, or whatever it is. And then it's like immediately taken away from that. And so I kind of, I didn't put it in the book per se, but as, as, Izzy inches towards an understanding of the collective versus the individual and the family. You know, I was thinking myself about like activism for hypocrites, that there has to be a way to, to allow people to come from wherever they are um, and to band together as humans have always had to do in times of deep emergency. Um, and so that's why I wanted her to be, um, I wanted her to start out really be, being not particularly interested in this. 
um, so that also the flickers of sort of feeling she has and and affinity for things that start to happen in the book, they happen not only with understanding her mentor, Sylvia, who is a longtime environmentalist and doomer, but also with all the non-human species around. You know, she starts to notice things about the world around her. Um, and the first step of that is to notice that she doesn't notice. One One time she's eating a sandwich and she walks back and she says, you know, possibly there was a light coming greenly through the trees. Like she doesn't even register her outside um, world very much because she lives very much in her head, which um, I felt very equipped to write about. <laughs> um, act- activism for hypocrites feels like a a slogan I could really get behind. Right. It's the only, it's the only activism <laughs> slogan I can get behind. <laughs> In terms of research for this book, I think when I saw you last, you were in the UK um, to go to a, a, a festival of doomers in near Bristol, as, as I remember it. Can can, yes. can you talk talk a little bit about the research you did? Um, so this book, Weather, is um, partly comes from just years and years of talking to my best friend, Lydia Millett, who's a novelist and um, has worked as an environmentalist um, also all this time. And so when I started, I started reading about um, Paul Kingsnorth, um, who I was a big activist and at a certain point wrote, I'm not going to do this anymore. I feel like a priest who doesn't believe in God. I'm going to, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to go for a walk. Um, a few years later, he started something called the Dark Mountain, which was meant to be, uh, well, who knows what it was meant to be. It was basically meant to be a place where artists, writers, scientists, if they wanted to, could kind of retreat from the obligatory note of hope and usual stream of campaigning to kind of say, okay, what if we are too far past the point to you know, quote unquote, stop this. What, what then? What if we're in hospice? And so I went to this, um, with Lydia and, um, Lydia of course had been not to the doomer version of it, but to many, a um, environmental conference before, unlike me. And she had an unerring sense of when something was going to turn participatory and she would leave. Like I would be happily sitting there listening to a, 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 you know, what I thought was a lecture (laughs) about, you know, some kind of species that was endangered or, or the soil, like making the soil better. And then all of a sudden Lydia would just sort of be like, mm, I think we should, I think we should go. And I'd be like, why? I'm, I'm really interested. She'd be like, uh, and then she would leave. And then they'd be like, let's have a breakout group. And then I would turn and I would talk to the person and, um, and they would tell me how they ended up being there. I mean, I found, I don't know if this is just the American thing where you think everyone uh, British is like brilliantly smart because of their accents. But, um, but I found it to be a very thoughtful group. Um, and there's actually a book that's coming out, uh, right now called notes from an apocalypse by Mark O'Connell. And he went to it too. And it was so weird because I realized, I think we met some of the same people. Um, but what I got out of being there was frankly, it was a relief to be around other people that didn't uh, 
that didn't think it was all going to be okay. Um, but also who are trying to figure out other ways to sort of approach it. Like, okay, if this usual way and all these kind of bloodless words like sustainability and uh, what is there, how can we talk? What other ways can we talk? And and I was brought in by reading the Dark uh, Mountain Manifesto, which which one of the lines in it is, um, the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world, full stop. Um, and someone who was at this uh, event, um, who I think, uh, was from somewhere in South America had said to the, one of the organizers, like what you guys are thinking of as the apocalypse is the way like most of us live in the rest of the world. I thought that was really useful and really, um, interesting, but there was also like drumming and people put white face paint on and there were some Guatemalan vests. There were lots of things that I was, you know, not quite down with. <laughs> uh-huh. That's yeah, that's that's interesting. It makes me think I think there's a line in in Weather um about life in New York after 9/11 and someone says um it's it's you know y- Americans have just joined the rest of the planet as 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 part of history now whereas before you were kind of um above it. Well, that was a, that was a, someone, um, that comes from a real life conversation I had, uh, with a friend of mine who, whose family did, um, have to leave, uh, Iran after the Shah fell. And I just remember it's the same as it's going on right now. And this is what I write about in weather. Um, it's a very peculiar feeling when everywhere you go in a city, people are talking about the same thing. Um, for me, it's only happened, uh, three times in all the years I lived there. One was uh, after 9-11 and one was after Trump was elected. But that one was different because some people didn't think it was a tragedy, which was scary in a different way. Um, And then this now, what's happening now. And so in this passage in in weather, she's talking about the hum because it's sort of a, a hum of, of conversation and, and her friend uh, doesn't want to talk about it. He's already lived through it. And then he, that's what he says. He says, uh, your people have finally fallen into history. The rest of us are already here. And I think that's a very interesting statement he made because, of course, many, many people in America um, who are not white middle class people uh, have long been uh, entrenched in a violent and difficult history in America. But I think there's a way in which um, <laughs> my friend Lydia that I was just talking about said the other day, oh, you know, America's just perpetual amnesia. Like every time it's a new day, every time something happens, it's never happened before. And it is, that's one of the things about our country where uh, we're not the best at learning from what's go- gone before. It's really interesting. I've, that that idea of um, a kind of, citywide conversation I guess I've never I've never lived in a city where that's happened un, un, until now and it's like yeah walking around walking around it, it it is you have the sense even though you're hearing different people you know you're walking down the street there are still people on the street at the moment or overhearing across the garden fence or whatever it is you know it's it's essentially one conversation it doesn't matter who who you're hearing exactly it might, it might as well be in reply to the the person you you heard a couple of hours ago or the person who's on the radio it's it's kind of it's it's mind blowing to think there is no other topic right now right there's no other topic and it uh, i i went to the grocery store um 
well, my my slight prepper tendencies um, did mean that I was uh, worried about this for a few few weeks uh, before it sort of arrived, and um, and my husband uh, being a mathematical sort worried even longer <laughs> because uh, this was this was the the disaster that the math nerds really really called. If you're on epidemiology Twitter, you would have been uh, well well versed. But I was at the supermarket. And it was starting to get a little weird. I'd been the week before and could see the difference. And what was really strange to me was I I could hear people um, spreading misinformation in real time. Um, You know, like during wartime, if you see those wartime posters from World War II, you know, those UK ones were really... Yeah. And they would, and it was all about like, don't spread rumors. And I was always like, huh. But, but this is what I overheard in the, in the, as I was, you know, uh, buying bread. This woman came up to another woman. They seemed like they hadn't seen each other in a long time. I, uh, judgmentally like noticed that they were not far enough apart. And then, um, and then she said, uh, she said, yes, it's, it's, it, I hear it's getting really bad with the, uh, how there's not tests for anyone and there's no way that we can, that that we can tell who has it. And the other woman said, Oh yes. But so far a conversation I've been having with my friends. And then this other woman uh, seemed perfectly reasonable said, yeah, I heard from my, you know, sister's friend's aunt that uh, they broke into uh, the testing facility up near Albany the other day to steal tests. And I was like, that makes exactly no sense <laughs> like what what version would like breaking into a medical facility that's working around the clock to get tests allow you to uh prevent it? but it was it was really interesting and then i also saw for the first time um people who'd come up from the city um and i knew it was people from the city because they were wearing uh really cool, stylish clothes. And their cart was filled to the top with everything expensive that is <laughs> you can buy. It was like, oh, you know, the, the porcini mushroom uh, apocalypse and the truffle oil apocalypse. That's and they right. were wearing masks, which no one else was wearing. Um, so it was, it, it is, it's very, well, you know, um, oat, oat, oat milk will last a long, a long time. Oh, they had oat milk. They had, they had cleared out the oat milk. And this is like a, you know, this is basically a very run-of-the-mill uh, grocery store. So they'd had to do some some looking to find out. There's like basically one aisle of like super expensive things that you can get. But but, but weirdly, when I was um, I, I was prepping, obviously much later than you were. When I was prepping, there was a sense in in the well, the nearby supermarket was basically empty. So I went to my my local shop, and only the expensive things remained. So I was like, well, yeah. I guess I I am gonna buy. The Japanese, of course, udon noodles that I sometimes yeah. get as a treat, and, and I'm going to buy five packets of them. Exactly, <laughs> so it's this weird thing of of kind of being forced into living a, a a lifestyle I can't afford. Well, that was what was so funny about this, though, because the rest of the shores, the store was still stocked except for uh, toilet paper and um, and hand sanitizer. It was still stocked, so uh, that's how I made that. I think, but then I did something just like you. I made this risk calculation, um, which was basically just magical thinking that there's a extremely overpriced, um, health food store 
in my town, which I basically never go into because it's so expensive that I cannot buy anything. And I went there thinking people that go to this health food store are already really worried about their health. They're not going to be crowding in here, you know? And, and, and indeed it was mostly empty. Uh, and, uh, and I bought all sorts of things that I would never ever have spent. I, my daughter was drinking a, a ginger ale that I got there and I had bought a six pack of it thinking it was two fifty nine in dollars. And it actually was, each one was two fifty nine. Oh, I realized wow. at the register. <laughs> and they said, encourage, um, you know, sipping when you, when you know it yes. costs two fifty nine a can. And, yeah. and, and have you, uh, have you got, you know, how close to Lizzie are you? Have you got your doomstead planned? Have you got somewhere you can, you, you could possibly on, on, on a, on a hill? I don't live in a city anymore. So, um, I live about an hour and a half out of New York and, um, yeah, we're lucky enough to rent. We sort of, we rent a carriage house and, uh, and there's all this land around it. Um, so yeah. You're already in your doomstead. Yeah, I guess it is a doomsday. I mean, it's a doomsday that's like, you know, five minutes from uh, Bard College and five minutes from Target. So I never quite uh, thought of it as that before, but it's feeling that way at the moment um, compared to like our city apartment where I, I, I keep thinking, you know, about because also the 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 relative luck, I think, uh, that you become aware of, um, it's like. I don't know, this time last year, I had to have back surgery. I was in like excruciating pain. So I would have, that would have been ca canceled or my parents both just got out of the hospital and they live down the road from me. Um, and there's all these moments uh, with people I know that are just, um, have really uh, difficult to manage things coming up or are canceling huge events like weddings or even funerals. Yeah, I feel like... Um, I don't feel like it was through any particular forethought that I ended up in a good situation. I think I just did. It's funny, isn't it? It, it creates a situation where you, you, you kind of replay in your mind all the decisions that led you to be where you are. It, well, if I'd, you know, mm -hmm. if, if we'd happened to say we were going to visit my, my granny on that day, then we'd be out in Scotland now and it'd be perfect. But as, yeah, you, know, you, do, exactly. you just feel like, suddenly every micro decision you made has enormous significance either you've been lucky or you've been unlucky suddenly all the minor parts of our life have taken on massive weight well i think that's i mean that's something i was really thinking about so much when i was writing weather was this idea which i think is it's not such an interesting sounding word but like of interconnectedness and one of the things that that happens right now is that if you go to a store, um, you notice everyone around you and it's as if there's an invisible uh, thread between everyone because you notice if they pick something up, you, I hope, notice the valiant person ringing up your groceries. Um, you think that there are people who are stocking it. And so suddenly this whole chain of things that basically makes living in this part of the Western world kind of like magic. Um, it's like the curtain is pulled away and it's not magic. It's lots and lots of work and lots of lots of people um, now putting themselves at risk so you can have a tomato out of season or whatever the thing you're buying. 
Um, and so I think that it's a very, uh, it's, it's the way I felt about climate change. Like when there's a little semi joke in the book where it's like young person worry, what if nothing I do matters? Old person worry, what if everything I do does? And that's what I feel like both of these emergencies sort of, um, whether it's a personal decision about how to keep your family safe and, and we're all second guessing uh, those I think right now, cause it's so scary. Um, or it's about, um, you know, after nine 11, there were all these people that moved out of New York city. And at the time I thought it was very strange. Um, but I, that they would just pick up and move who'd lived there for so many years. But I, I suspect there will be a similar, uh, a similar trend that happens when this is over of people who felt uh, too little control of their environment um, trying to create more control by living farther from others. Completely. And I think I read it in an interview. It's another part of this um, disaster uh, behavior this idea of normalcy bias that, mm-hmm. that, that, that we, that, that we are, we, we would tend towards believing the world is, is, is kind of sane and normal, but obviously when something as substantial as this has happened and proven beyond doubt that things are not normal, then you, you have, have no choice, but to rethink on a, on a broader scale. And it makes sense that then you'd be making decisions, uh, bigger decisions about, about how you might change your life. And, and it also makes me think, I don't want to, it feels a bit inappropriate to be kind of hopeful about climate change off the back of this, but um, it it certainly feels like what's happening now reveals um, something about our our ability to change things. I don't want to say mm-hmm. that when this is over, we are going to be you know awoken from our, our, our kind no, of no. I think what fantasies. it what it shows what it shows is that um, there's more nimbleness than there appeared to be about responding to emergencies. Um, Things, unfortunately, because climate change moves in fits and starts and doesn't show up all in the same place at the same time, um, it doesn't really register for most people as a threat in the kind of immediate way that this does, even though, of course, people are already... uh, dying from its effects. And I think anyone that followed the wild, the bushfires in Australia, um, you know, and floods and various things. But there's something about this because it is um, affecting everyone at the same time uh, equally. And there's a suddenness to it. And there's a way in which we've seen it before in a movie um, where people's imaginations about how to respond to it uh, seem to sort of leapfrog more quickly to uh, everything from what, which people can work at home and which people can't and how do we support the people who can't to um, things like the way the Italian people are coping, you know, in this tragedy with the singing on the, th- I mean, uh, you know, that sort of moved me to tears to see people on their balconies um, singing or uh, playing music to each other, and and I do feel like the one thing that maybe after this is over, um, 
everyone is going to be grief stricken uh, because of the death toll. And I don't think it'll be a quick, um, a quick study at all to figure out how to apply it to other crises. But one thing I noticed when I was uh, studying sociology and, and psychology uh, for um, this book is that so many of the people that did studies about who rescues people in times of trouble, who stands up to authority, who whatever, were people who either escaped the Holocaust or whose parents uh, perished in it or some, something like that. There was this influx of scholars that had had this um, moment in their life that was so terrible, so formative. And I wonder if the the way that people are creating community now and it's a locally based community. I do hope that some of that and maybe the part about supporting the businesses as soon as we can go out to them, the small businesses that won't get bailouts, uh, some of that might be transferable into what it would be like to live in a less fossil fuel um, intensive society. But I think no one can make the leap until there's been... um, you know, in, until we see how this plays out and, and, and we get through what is going to be such a, such a dark period. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's really hard at this early stage to say, but it, it, it feels like a fundamental psychological change. Um, I mean, I know it's just interesting to just stop. You realize how many things you do in a given day that you don't actually need to do. I mean, they just stop and you're like, oh, I guess I didn't need to do that or I didn't need to whatever. And it's very, Completely. it's very strange. And also just, you know, we, we we can't help but feel attached to the things we've done in our life and feel that they are the valuable way of doing things. You know, the, whatever mm-hmm. our childhood, if we had a happy childhood, whatever that was, that feels like the right thing. The way people replicate however many kids, mm-hmm. you know, that their Indeed, parents had. Yeah. Automatically. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And, but, by the same token, you know, academic conferences now all happening on Zoom or on Skype or whatever, mm-hmm. and you know, friendships entirely conducted over the, the phone, and all these n- new forced ways of experiencing the world. You know, if we mm-hmm. if we come out of this feeling that actually we realised, you know, we obviously wouldn't want to to replicate this again, but we don't need to be so mindlessly attached to to certain ways of living. Then then mm-hmm. it feels like it, it could have. Um, it could have some positives. Yeah. I think the idea that there can be connection with less travel is one of the things that's been interesting to me. I really like to travel. And as someone uh, thinking more and more about climate, uh, it's been the uh, number one in my hypocrite <laughs> in your act, act, activism uh, for hypocrites. Yes, activism <laughs> for hypocrites. Uh, it is, you know, I, the part where I'm like on book tour talking about this novel flying from place to place is the irony is not lost on me uh, as how stupid that is. But, um, but I do think, yeah, that, that ideas, you know, by the end of the novel, I'm really thinking, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was really, really thinking about what it meant to um, think more collectively and think more as a community because actually the people have been working on the climate things for a long time. Um, If you ask them what you can do as an individual, they say, don't do things as an individual. 
do things with other people. Um, that's how political action happens. That's how local initiatives like the transition towns, which were started in England, um, do. And so I, um, I'm trying to leapfrog over the strangeness of, uh, not doing it in person because my idea of community was like, okay, you've got to go join this group, even though you don't like groups or you've got to do this or that. Um, but maybe there's more, uh, one-on-one -on -one building that can happen and more in many ways, this book to me was about thinking of, of like caretaking. And in the beginning, uh, Lizzie is a, she's very much someone who feels that she's responsible for other people, whether it's her brother or her own family or her mother um, and some of her friends as well. But she starts to feel that way about strangers and even about, um, the the whole extended world and that's a a scary way to feel um but it's also a way that uh i think leads to meaning um to think beyond your own the reason that by the end she's less of a doomer and i'm not a doomer either is that i feel like uh, i don't i don't want to just protect myself and my family i want to try to imagine less precarious ways to live. And, um, because I'm a novelist, I did that in a novel. Um, if I were a scientist, I'm sure I would do it in some other more, uh, immediately useful way. But, um, that's what's going on towards the end when, when she remembers that bit of, uh, search and rescue lore about how people walk past their own search parties. Cause I found that so fascinating. And, uh, and she's wondering about that. Like, what if she's walking past her own search party. And I feel like, uh, a lot of times in my life I've done that. Well, I think that's uh, a beautiful place to end. And it was so good to speak to you. So good to speak to you too. It was your book's brilliant. I, I commend all our listeners to buy it and feel full of mind expanding thoughts and hope and excitement as well as reality. Thanks so much for talking to me. This was a real delight. Thank you to Jenny and thank you to Joe for such a fantastic interview. If you have questions or want to get in touch, and I imagine at the moment there's some unusual questions coming up for everyone, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can check out our Facebook page and you can, of course, find out lots of information over on our main website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Please do continue to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast because it helps people to find us. We're going to keep going with the podcast every week, so make sure you do tune in and subscribe to it. Thanks again for listening. Keep writing, look after each other, and we will catch you on the next episode. I always want to do the Dr. Dre thing. Always. <laughs> it's very tempting, isn't it? Um.